Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the Mighty Eights podcast, a podcast about the people, planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force during World War II, with me, Johan Tasker, and military historian, Mike Peters. In this episode, we're at Ridgewell Airfield in the east of England, home of the 381st Bomb Group here in the county of Essex, about 50 miles northeast of London. Mike, this episode's about one of the most infamous air battles of World War II, certainly one of the most written about, the Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid on August 17th, 1943. What are we going to be looking at? We're going to be looking at what was a, an extremely ambitious mission. The construct of it, the scale of it, the objectives of it were all ambitious, as I said, and it was a complex mission, uh, which took a lot of, uh, a lot of planning and... Uh, and was um, designed to strike right at the heart of the German aircraft industry and really embodied the doctrine of daylight precision bombing, that uh, the bomber would get through these mass formations of US Army Air Force bombers, heavily armed, without fighter escort, could fight their way right into the heart of Germany, deep into the industrial base, destroy a precision target and fight their way out again. And we're going to take a look at the reasons for that raid, the people who took part and why it was such a daring mission. A really big challenge. We're here at Ridgewell Airfield, home of the 381st Bomb Group. And to help us on that journey, on that mission, we're joined by a very special Mighty Eights podcast guest, Paul Bingley, chairman of Ridgewell Airfield Commemorative Museum. Paul, you're not only the chairman of the museum, you've also co-written a book with Mike about the 381st called Bomb Group, not only talking about this mission, but talking about the whole history of the 381st. Yes, Bomb Group came about as a result of trying to understand what took place at Ridgewell during the Second World War. It was a, it was a way of understanding what took place here and then putting it together in a coherent narrative. And Mike and myself did that over a fair period of time. And Bomb Group is the result. We'll put a link to that book so people who want to find out more, people who want to purchase a copy of it can do so by looking at the show notes to this episode of the Mighty Eighth podcast. The 381st Paul, based here at Ridgewell, played a key role in that Schweinfurt-Regensburg mission. It did. Uh, it was at the forefront, really, of the, the Schweinfurt part of that raid in the first task force that was sent, pretty much spearheading that whole mission. Consequently, it was a bit of a disastrous mission for, for the 381st, as we will find out. 
And we're going to talk all about that mission in a moment, about the people, the planes and the places of that Schweinfurt Regensburg raid. But right now we're standing here outside one of the Nissen huts at Ridgewell. And from the outside, at least, it looks almost exactly as it would have done 80 years ago on the day of the Schweinfurt raid, August 17th, 1943. And it's been lovingly restored with a black painted corrugated roof two big lamps either side of the main entrance to the Nissen hut and a sign by the door proudly telling us that this is Essex's only long-term heavy bomber base. Paul, what does that mean? So during the Second World War, there was something like 22 airfields used throughout Essex, but all of them, bar Ridgewell, were used by a variety of different aircraft types whereas Ridgewell was only ever used by heavy bombers. So at the outset of operations in January 1943, short Stirlings of 90 Squadron arrived here, and they remained here for the next five months where they carried out 51 operations. And then from June 1943, the 381st Bomb Group's B-17s arrived, and they remained here for the duration of the Second World War. So only two types of bomber ever used Ridgewell, and they were heavy bombers, hence the reason for... Ridgewell being Essex's only long-term heavy bomber base. Now, there were thousands of Nissen huts just like the one we're standing outside on airfields right across eastern England, many of them used as barracks. This particular Nissen hut was part of the hospital, and we're on the edge of the airfield next to the road, which goes to Braintree, where there was a large U.S. hospital. So uh, nursing people back to health here at Ridgewell, the more seriously injured and wounded going down the road to Braintree. Listeners can probably hear some of the traffic in the background. Today, the hut has a different role, keeping alive the memories of the men and women who served here at Ridgewell. Today, it's home to Ridgewell Airfield Commemorative Museum. Let's go inside and take a look. So, I like this direction here. This was sent to us from the States last year. This guy's uniform. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, the planes and the places of the United States 8th Army Air Force during World War II. With me, Johan Tasker, military historian Mike Peters and special podcast guest Paul Bingley, chairman of Ridgewell Airfield Commemorative Museum. We've come into the museum. Paul, what was life like at Ridgewell? So when we look at Ridgewell, like many other bases it wasn't until 1941 that this place was requisitioned and it was just farmland it was just a rural landscape by 1942 it was complete and you're talking a three intercepting runway three mile perimeter track 36 hard stands that's just the airfield to supplement that you've got around 500 buildings to accommodate around 2,900 people So suddenly, these rural areas, they have this massive airfield built in the middle of it, in Ridgewell, the village of Ridgewell. Uh, There were approximately 400 people living there at the time. And then in June 43, the Americans arrive, and they bring with them their chewing gum and their nylons and this, that and the other. And so you can imagine it was a melting pot here. So you've got 2,500-odd people here filtering out into the local communities, going to the pubs. And these guys have come from all over the States. You know, suddenly they're on the other side of the Atlantic in a place that seems familiar because people are almost speaking the same language, but they're not. It's a different language and there's different money. So it it was a very interesting mix of people that suddenly came together at one time. We've come further into the museum. Mike, this is a reproduction of a, of a 1940s living room. And we can also see a, a shop shelf with uh, UK products, English, British uh, food products, also selling American products as well. The arrival of the Americans really did make a huge difference to the local community. Yes, it's a completely different standard of living. We're in rural Essex, close to the Suffolk border. Prior to the war, this is a very, very agricultural Definitely a rural area. But looking at this this room here, the, the classic Belfast sink, uh, coal coal fire stove, clothes uh, uh, dryer hanging from the from the ceiling, which some of us remember back in the past, and the Baker light switches, uh, the radio being the focal point of of entertainment, Tilly lamps, paraffin heaters, 
And if we look at the shelf, you know, starch, soap powder, gravy powder, obviously rationing is in full tilt by the time the Americans arrive, but they, they're, they're bringing their own supplies in. So some of that's going to leak out. I mean, Paul mentioned, you know, nylons and chewing gum and chocolate and Coca-Cola and all that stuff that comes. And of course, the US is untouched by war itself. After Pearl Harbor, you know, it's not, it's not under bombing. So they're producing, that economy is, is generating the supplies and the, the nice things to have for the Americans. And it's just an army. They want their, their soldiers, men and women in Europe to be well looked after, well clothed, well fed. So that's been shipped over in huge amounts. And naturally, some of that's going to be, is going to leak out of these airfields, whether deliberately by Americans giving it or finding its way out by other, other means. So, and into the black market. So, so you can see there's a, there's a huge culture shock here. We're looking at a real impact on society around here and certainly also on the standard of living when you're looking for fuel, chocolate, chewing gum, nylons, a night out, something to read, a, a, a US comic, a record. And when you read a lot of the air crew accounts, they, they're bringing stuff with them on, the, on their own B-17 so that they, they cherish possessions. And a lot of that is music. And so there's a big impact of that. And then the dancers, et cetera, as well. People coming from, in from outside the station onto the station to hear American music and to dance to it. Mike, as we stand here and look up, we can see the museum ceiling is painted with, well, it's painted white, but there are, there are red bomb plaques on the ceiling, each one representing a particular person that served here at Ridgewell and flew on missions from this airfield. The mission we're particularly interested in here today is mission 84, the Schweinfurt Regensburg mission, the Schweinfurt part of that mission. Tell me about it. As you've mentioned, there are two two targets, Schweinsfurt and Regensburg. And, and the whole principle, which is part of Operation Point Blank, was to destroy the German fighter force. And that German fighter force, we're going to destroy it at source. We're going to knock out the factories that build the Messerschmitts, that make the ball bearings, that make the, the Junker engines and the Messerschmitt engines and the BMW engines. We're going to, we're going to de- destroy it at source. And we're going to do that with daylight bombing precision bombing, using our Norden bomb sites and all our guns, etc., our concept. And we're going to fly all the way without fighter escort, other than at the start, all the way deepest into Third Reich airspace, punch our way in, hit the target, and then fight our way back out again. But you've just got to consider that as for just for a moment before we go any further. This is going to be the biggest raid to date that the 8th Air Force has undertaken. The Germans are obviously watching. The British, Bomber Harris and Churchill, you know, Roosevelt, they're, they're all watching this. And that's the essence of the Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid, as in doctrinally and, and what they're trying to do strategically. Doing that as an airman or as a crew, as a bomb group, that's a completely different matter. And the 381st are at the absolute spearhead of this on the day in August. This was a two-pronged attack, a dual strike, as it were, Two bomb wings, the first bomb wing going to Regensburg to bomb the Messerschmitt factory, the second bomb wing of which the 381st bomb group was part. This was going to Schweinfurt to bomb the ball bearing factories there. The idea being that if you could bomb a ball bearing factory and take out ball bearing production, you would then effectively take out the German war machine, which relied heavily on ball bearings for things like engines, moving parts, etc., etc. There's no arguing with the American logic. Absolutely none. And of course, they think they have the technology to do that. So the logic being, okay, we're going to knock the fighters out of the sky when we can with our, with our own fighters. But actually, if the Germans can't make those fighters, if they can't put the engines in them because the engines haven't got any ball bearings, that's even better. So we're going to attrit reduce and ultimately destroy the the German Luftwaffe's fighter force piece by piece at every part of the branch that makes those, puts those fighters into the sky, the aircraft, the pilots, the parts, the fuel, right down to the rubber that goes on the tyres, the ball bearings that makes the engines work, allow the engines to work and the gearboxes. That's what, that's what we're about. It makes absolute sense. And the idea of this twin-pronged approach, this dual strike, hitting the two targets of Regensburg and Schweinfurt in quick succession, was that it would split and confuse the German Air Force, giving the mighty eighth a decisive advantage. 
That was the concept, absolutely, and it was a good plan. Uh, in in concept, it was it was a good plan. There were two main targets in the raid: uh, Schweinfurt and Regensburg. Regensburg, first of all, was uh, a force led of 146 B-17 flying fortresses, and they would attack the Messerschmitt fighter uh, production plant there. They were led by a man whose name would live much long after the war, Curtis LeMay. He would command that force, and that would be followed by a second wing of another 230. B-17 bombers led by uh, Brigadier General Robert B. Williams. And they would have um, quite an array of, t- of targets, but there were three uh, ball-bearing factories at Schweinfurt, three separate factories, and that force would then go in and, and knock out the ball-bearing. So knocking out a, a fighter production and a ball-bearing plant quite close together. And as you mentioned, the idea, the concept of the plan was that it would diverse and confuse the German defences so that uh, they would work and, and support each other. More about that later. But that was the concept. And the 381st Bomb Group, that was part of the Schweinfurt Bomb Wing, the huge group of 230 planes that were dispatched to bomb Schweinfurt. Paul, Mike, let's go out onto the airfield and see how they got on. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to the Mighty Eighth Podcast with me, Johan Tasker, military historian Mike Peters, and very special guest, Paul Bingley. We're out on the airfield now where we're going to talk about the Schweinfurt mission on the 17th of August, 1943. Paul, we're at the end of the runway. You can still very much see the concrete here. It's not as wide as it was. It's not as long as it was, but it's still very much here. Yeah, we've got a tiny strip of it still left, the main runway. It was 6,000 feet long back in the war, but a lot of it was taken away in the 60s when this place was handed back to the farmers from whom it was taken during the Second World War. But this, where we're standing at the moment, was quite an, it's quite an evocative place because you can imagine, you know, you've got B-17 after B-17 taking off over our heads, winging their way to Germany. The 381st had a habit of forming up over the base, flying in a a counterclockwise direction, sometimes up to an hour. So the locals would get a good view of the number of bombers that were going out on missions. And I'm often told that, you know, people would count them out and then they'd count them back in again. So it's a, it's an evocative place. It's, it's usually quite a peaceful place, but it's also at the moment the home of the Essex Gliding Club. And there's some people in the background uh, tending to the runway, keeping back some of the shrubbery and uh, making it good uh, good enough for gliding, if uh, if not for heavy bombers any longer. Mike, the Schweinfurt-Regensburg mission, tell me about the strategy behind it. It's very much a fight-your-way-in, fight-your-way-out strategy with some uh, some complications. And it's, it's a well-thought-out, very complicated plan. And it really is uh, going to take the raid right into the heart of German air defences. And, and of course, crucially, they've got to f- get out again as well. And they've got some thoughts about how they're going to do that. So basically, they're going to get through the defences, bomb Regensburg, before, which will be the first combat wing, before immediately turning south and flying on to reach American air bases in North Africa. So that's going to be a deception plan. They're not going to turn around and head, fly back to uh, to England. And then the second bomb wing would then push on and peel off and, and hit Schweinfurt and bomb the ball burning factories soon afterwards. They'll then have to fight their way out, having hit their targets. So 
that first bomb wing will have probably expended most of its ammunition fighting its way through. So going south to North Africa made sense. They'd have less ammunition left and be, there'd be less resistance. And the enemy would be pulled onto the second wing and throw themselves onto that who will have not expended much of their ammunition because they've not been in action so far. That's the theory, and we'll see if that works later on in the episode. So the first bomb wing goes to Regensburg, bombs Regensburg, turns right, turns south, goes on to North Africa. The second bomb wing, of which the 381st bomb group is part, that's going to follow 15 to 20 minutes later, bomb Schweinfurt, the ball-bearing factories, and then return to England and to Ridgewell. Yeah, the theory being that the Luftwaffe will be so fixated on the first bomb group and think the second one's going to follow it as they've always done before, that that's, what, that's the way it's going to run. And uh, the distraction will work. It's almost like a boxer, the left and right hand punch. Uh, and then the, the other surprise will be, hey, they're not turning back to UK, they're going to North Africa. So that'll distract them again and throw, throw the fighter controllers. And then meanwhile, Schweinfurt's being hit and they turn around. They've so got two forces split, which will again split the fighter forces. One American force heads to North Africa and one heads back to, to England. A hugely, hugely ambitious plan then. The deepest that the US 8th Army Air Force had ever been into Nazi Germany. Paul, the vast majority of aircrew didn't know anything about this until they were briefed on it just before the raid, but a select few had been briefed. That's right. So the senior officers of the 381st, that included Colonel Joseph Jane as RO, the commanding officer, were all briefed at Pine Tree, Wickham Abbey School, which had become the 8th Air Force's or 8th Bomber Command's headquarters. And among that group of senior officers was a young man, 22-year-old, Leonard Spivey. Uh, Leonard Spivey had been a farmer's son in New Mexico. He'd run out and joined the U.S. Army Air Corps uh, not long after Japan had attacked Pearl Harbor. And by November 1942, he'd become a navigator in the U.S. Army Air Forces. And he was assigned to the embryonic 381st Bomb Group at its first training base, which was in a place called Piotes in West Texas. And his arrival saw him kind of elevated through the ranks quite quickly. Uh, he was assigned to the 535th Bomb Squadron, and he was assigned to the squadron's model crew. And these guys were the cream of the crop of the group or the squadrons. They were the best pilots, the best navigators, best bombardiers. So he was assigned as the navigator of the 535th model crew at Pio. When he arrived at Ridgewell, which was in June 1943, he was elevated once again to become the squadron lead navigator. And then a few weeks before the Schweinfurt mission, he found himself as the group's standing navigator. So he was the head navigator of the group. He was responsible for all the administration for all the navigators across the 381st. So him and the, the commanding officers of the squadrons have all gone off to Pine Tree across London and they find themselves at this big mansion. And Spivey's 22 years old. You know, he's from New Mexico. Now he's got this big English mansion in the countryside. He's taken in, he's introduced to the, the bigwigs of the 8th Air Force. He shakes hands with Ira Eker, General Devers, the head of the US Army in Europe. So he can't believe where he is. He can't believe how, how far he's come. And the next thing he's taken out into the grounds of, of Wickham Abbey and he's taken to what he calls a kiosk. There's a kiosk in, in the middle of these grounds and he's ushered in and next thing he finds himself in an elevator, takes him underground into a bunker below the grounds of, of Wickham Abbey. And he comes out into a huge room that's lined with charts, maps of different airfields. And in the center of this room is a small model and it's a small model of a German town. And it's announced that this is Schweinfurt. This is going to be our next big thing. This is the next big target that we're aiming for. This is producing around 50% of Germany's uh, ball-bearing output. You know, a very humble ingredient in the production of tanks and aircraft. So it is a key target. And it's going to be your mission to go there and destroy this. So Spivey is standing there looking at this small model. And he's, he's counting the number of flat guns that are shown around this town and he counts 80 of them 
And this makes him very nervous. He, did, he was nervous about Flack anyway. He reasoned that, you know, at least with fighters, you can shoot them down. You can't shoot Flack down. So this, this wasn't, this wasn't a good thing for Spivey, 80 Flack guns. And then with that, an RAF officer approaches him, sees him studying this model and he says to him, look, you know, I think the plan's going to be that we go in at 15,000 feet. And Spivey said, well, we're going to be a much bigger target. So that was Spivey's introduction to Schweinfurt. It was the, the introduction for the four squadron COs. But obviously, you've got another 260 men who are going to be flying that mission who have absolutely no idea of where Schweinfurt is, what it means, but they would certainly know about it on August the 17th. That's a great story, Paul, because as well as telling the story of understanding the, the, the plan and the, and, the, and the flak and all that shit, 12 months before... The 8th Air Force mounted a raid of 12 aircraft, only 12 months before. Now we're talking about a couple of hundred, 350 aircraft being involved in, in, in this multiple target raid. But then as an individual, we see Spivey enlisting, becoming an uh, aircrew, becoming a navigator, becoming a good navigator, being pulled forward. And as, as the, the group, the Air Force expands and expands. He's been pulled through, and that's what happens. Anyone who's competent has been pulled through to the, the ceiling of their competence all the time. 22 years of age, and he's leading this raid for the Bond Group. He's responsible, the responsibility for navigating 26 B-17s into the heart of Luftwaffe defended airspace, hitting a target and getting them home falls on his shoulders as the lead navigator his alone he's only 22 years old for god's sake when i was 22 i could barely dress myself 22 years old as the lead navigator it's his job to find the target if he messes up everybody behind him messes up as well yes you would hope that one of the check navigators would also would would say we'd gone wrong but or you know but he he has the onus is on him he's had the most lead time the most understanding of the target he's seen the whole target pack he's known for the, the longest amount of time and got himself ready so and he is the most not necessarily the most experienced navigator but certainly the most capable and proficient navigator in the bomb group so there is no one better we're going to meet Leonard Spivey again a little later on. This raid, though, was to involve more than 350 B-17s, the mighty eighth's biggest and most dangerous mission to date. And yet the majority of the 381st was still relatively new to all of this. That's right. Uh, so we think probably around half of the men who would eventually fly the Schweinfurt mission were replacements. So they had replaced crews that had previously gone down, which is quite remarkable considering the 381st had only been at Ridgewell since June the 22nd, 1943. So they'd only flown up until that point 19 missions in total, but they'd lost 14 B-17s and 140 men. So again, a lot of the guys who were, were earmarked to fly the Schweinfurt mission had only just arrived themselves. So these guys were, were rookies, and for some, this was their first mission. And what a first mission to fly. Understandable, then, that the crews are going to be apprehensive about this raid when they found out about it, when they were briefed. The 381st, Mike, were due to take off at, at, at 6.30, but it wasn't to be. No, uh, and it's quite a critical factor, the weather isn't in favour of the takeoff, and uh, it's going to have a, a really big impact on the conduct of the mission. The uh, takeoffs are going to be delayed and delayed again, delayed again, until ultimately we're going to end up with a separation between the Regensburg force and the Schweinfurt force of five hours. And of course, that, from a strategic point of view, is disastrous because the whole concept of the plan is that the the two forces will cover each other as in as a decoy uh, the germans will think it's one force until it splits and then as we know uh, the regensburg force will head off to north africa the schweinfurt force will fight their way back out it'll split and divide confuse the german force what you get with a 5 hour separation is two completely separate raids uh, not not supporting each other at all. And what critically for the Germans, the Luftwaffe, a huge window of opportunity to reorganise, rearm, refuel, shift their fighters to different airfields, which is exactly what they did. So to concentrate completely on the first force with no distraction, let that go, land, rearm, refuel, replenish, move more reinforcements in, then focus on the second force completely all the way in, all the way out. It's a disaster for the Americans and it's a really, really provident moment for the for the Luftwaffe. So dawn breaks, the whole of the east of England is blanketed in bad weather, poor visibility, and the air chiefs have to decide what they're going to do. 
Yeah, and this exposes some, not cracks, but different standards because different bomb groups have been active longer, flown more missions or less missions than each other, So, and have different skill sets. So the 381st here are renowned for being very good at tight formation flying. But LeMay, who's leading the first raid, he's insisted that his crews are really good at what we would call instrument flying or bad weather flying. So his crews have to be able to take off and land in bad weather because England has bad weather. Germany france has have all have bad weather so and this exposes some of the some of the bomb groups that have come through the production line the training line who have trained in good weather in in america and they get here and this is alien completely alien to them so and it just shows how different groups and different group commanders have reacted over the months to get themselves to a point but critically the command and control to recall the raid is is limited we, we we assume we've got instant communications with our 21st century technology even now it would be difficult to do especially once that stream of aircraft have gone any fighter aircraft has gone any deception measures of underway this thing has an inexorability about it. It, it once you get to a certain point you can't stop it so then what do you do do you then it's almost like the, the great war do you send the next wave out of the trench over the top and the schweinfurt formation is the second wave do you send it or do you say no and let the Regensburg raid take all the heat all the way there and all the way to Africa or where as it goes? So the decision is taken. We go on. And some listeners might be thinking, well, why didn't the Regensburg force wait for the Schweinfurt force? But the Regensburg force was going to fly on to North Africa and they needed enough daylight hours to be able to do that. Had they waited too long, they wouldn't have been able to have completed their mission. That's absolutely correct because they've, they've got to get to the other end. And again, they don't fly at night. It's not something you do as a mass formation and they've got to get there, stay in formation together. They don't want to be scattered across North Africa or the Mediterranean or whatever. So it's a go, no go. Once you've gone for go, you're gone. So the Regensburg force sets off and what was to be a 15 minute wait or a 15 minute gap, 15 to 20 minute gap between each force turns into a five hour gap pull. That's right. So these guys, the 381st guys, they've been briefed three o'clock in the morning. It's now six o'clock in the morning. And then suddenly there's a red flare fired from the control tower to say, hold your horses. You're not going anywhere. Uh, and this was the start of hourly postponements for five hours. So these guys were standing, sitting at their aircraft waiting. Uh, obviously the nervousness is, bearing, is, is gearing up. The anxiety is getting higher. The American Red Cross sends trucks out across the across the base to deliver spam sandwiches, but the guys can't eat the spam sandwiches because they're too nervous to go. I don't think they fully understood exactly what this all meant, but obviously, as Mike has explained, this is a pretty much a disaster from the outset for the U.S. Army Air Force's 8th Air Force. And that huge delay, that five-hour delay, meant that when they did get going, as Mike has said, the Luftwaffe were waiting for them, they refueled, they were rearmed, and they were able to attack the Schweinfurt force almost without retribution. In both directions. In both directions, going into Germany and on the way out as well. Yeah, and you, they've only got so much ammunition on the fortresses for that, whereas the, Ameri- the Germans can go away, rearm, refuel, come back, and some of them did two or three times come back up, and it's, it's, it's uh, easy pickings. Let's leave the 381st then as they go on their way towards Germany and let's go somewhere else here at Ridgewell and find out what it was like waiting for their return. You're listening to the Mighty Eights podcast, the podcast about the people, planes and the places of the US 8th Army Air Force during World War II. With me, Johan Tasker, military historian Mike Peters and very special guest Paul Bingley. Paul, we've come now to the chapel, to the gym and the chapel at Ridgewell Airfield. The chapel is especially important at Ridgewell because a very special person had his office here. I'm talking about James Good Brown. Yeah, so most people wouldn't have heard of the name James Good Brown before, but in terms of the 381st Bomb Group and even actually the 8th Air Force as a whole, he was a very famous man. So he was the chaplain of the 381st Bomb Group. He arrived here at Ridgewell with the group. He'd come across on the Queen Elizabeth across the Atlantic as part of Operation Bolero. And he arrived here at Ridgewell in June 1943, and he stayed for the entire duration, so until June 1945. Uh, and in fact, he, he became the only chaplain to stay with the same bomb group throughout the war. So that, that was his claim to fame. But 
he was well loved by the men here because he gave spiritual guidance to them before their missions, before the Schweinfurt raid, for example. He was here to provide spiritual guidance, to give them a, a pep talk if they needed it. And um, he would regularly, as he would call it, sweat out these missions. So he would count them out and then wait for them to come back, sweating it out. And after the crews left on the Schweinfurt raid, he decided he needed to go and take his mind off things. He, he needed to kind of avoid this sweating out by uh, helping out on a local farm. So off he went and, uh, and helped out while the group was on its way to Schweinfurt. So we're standing outside what was known as the Jim Chapel Cinema at Ridgewell. Um, but effectively, this is where James Good Brown lived and worked. And this is where he wrote a diary throughout his two years here at Ridgewell. Uh, and this diary he subsequently pu published after the war in his book, The Mighty Men of the 381st Heroes All. And I commonly refer to this book as being Ridgewell's Bible because it is a warts and all account of what took place here uh, during the two years the 381st was based here. And again, he talks vividly about the Schweinfurt mission. And of course, Mike, during that time, at that time, once those planes had left and taken off from Ridgewell, there'd be no knowing what was happening to them until they arrived back here hours later. No, that, that's very true. The uh, mission would be mounted under radio silence uh, as much as possible. And uh, once they get into the air, they're not they're not worried about reporting back. It's more about going forward. I mean, there, there are aircraft whizzing up and down the, the stream, etc., doing what they need to do. But but to all intents and purposes, the group commander, if he's on the ground here, has no influence, and nor should he have. What's going to happen? The, the, whoever's leading the mission leads the mission, fights the mission, does the mission, and then they, they've left effectively their aircraft carrier, the the, the base, and the, the, it's done its bit. They've got to go and do their bit, and then come back and recover them. So. There's no actual reason to know what's going on, to be honest, although they probably would have liked to have known exactly what was going on. But, uh, there's no practical reason for that. So James Goodbrown and the rest of the airbase are waiting for the return of the Schweinfurt raid of the 381st Bomb Group. What's happening to them? So the, the Schweinfurt mission was, was split into two forces and they were, there was a 12 minute separation between each force. But the 381st was in the first force. It was in the front, in the very front and also in the low group. And the low group was the one that always tended to attract the fighters. So there we go. We've got 26 B-17s taking off from here at Ridgewell, 11 o'clock in the morning, five hours after they should have taken off and they're winging their way towards Germany when things go wrong again just as they're over Belgium. William Gross is leading the, the first contingent, the first force of which the 381st is part, and he spots a cloud bank up ahead and figures that, you know, if we fly through that, they're going to get scattered. So we're going to have to avoid that somehow. So he lowers the altitude of his force uh, by 4,000 feet. But the trailing force, the second force, which is under the command of uh, William Turner of the 40th Combat Wing, he, he stays at his altitude of 21,000 feet and carries on. And this will cause big problems down the line. Because they've changed their altitude. They've missed the rendezvous and with the fighter escort. And the fighters are briefed, and again, no radio communications, the fighters are briefed to meet at a certain time, at a certain identification point, at a certain height. They get there. The B-17s aren't there because they've changed their height. By the time the fighters have located the, the B-17 boxes, it's too late. They've expended their fuel, their bingo fuel. They've got to turn around and go back. No fighter escort. So on goes the Schweinfurt force being attrited all the way. The Germans at uh, the fighter control centres have picked this up. They know about it. Regenberg, Regensburg force has advertised the raid. They're all waiting. Uh, fighters have been reallocated from all over Germany and southern Germany up to the to northwest, ready to meet them. And it, it, they're running the gauntlet. It's almost like the wagon train in an Indian film going along there with just constantly being attacked by these this constant stream and waves and waves of Luftwaffe fighters. When they get towards the target, they're going to have to reform to be in the right formation to hit the target and drop the bombs. Of course, they need visibility to do that. And, and that's, going to, that's going to be a real problem because the whole point of this concept of daylight precision bombing, this tight formation... Part of being in a tight formation is not just to be defensive. That's important. But also it tightens the your, your dropping of your bombs. You need to be all the right height, the right compact formation, uh, flying at the right same speed over the target. So you get a really tight, accurate and effective bomb drop. 
when you have separated like that and you rejoin it takes a while to rejoin that formation so that separation isn't there they're right nice pristine neat tidy accurate formation isn't there so they've been delayed by five hours they've missed their rendezvous and they're not arriving at the target in the right sequence or at the right heights ball the 381st was being led by conway hall and Conway Hall, he's the deputy commanding officer of the 381st. And almost as soon as the, the escort fighters disappear back to England, the Germans attack, the Luftwaffe attack. And very quickly, he sees his wingman get shot down. So another B-17 pulls into position alongside. And within minutes, he's gone down too. So Conway Hall shouting, we need to leave that position open. We just continue on. But these attacks are becoming more and more relentless. And in fact, that wingman who was shot down, the second one, all of the crew managed to bail out bar the pilot. Pilot was killed when the aircraft crashed in Germany. But two of those crew would eventually go on to escape and evade capture after bailing out over Germany and reputedly became the first... Uh, Americans to escape and evade capture from Germany. And Leonard Spivey, who we met earlier, what's happening to him? Well, he's he's firing his machine gun in the nose of his B-17, and uh, he talks about at the end of this raid as being ankle deep in shell casings. In fact, he reckons that he 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 expended about four thousand rounds just in his position alone. You have you know eight other positions on the aircraft where people are firing machine guns so he's he's really firing away uh, as are all the gunners in the 381st trying to trying to fight their way to Schweinfurt. and when they get there mike do they manage to hit the target yes after the weather the flak repeated fighter attacks and the formation separation and rejoin they do manage to reform and appear over the target uh, unfortunately, because of the disruption to the formation, because of all of those factors, it becomes a stream rather than the tight boxes that were planned. And what happens then is that they bomb in a four-mile-long stream of explosions. So two miles of that is beyond the target, but two miles of it are around, on or around the target. So it is effective. It's about 30 to 35% effective, although the post-operational or post-mission analysis by the US Army 8th Air Force is is far more optimistic than that. It's, it, they claim that they've really done a lot of serious damage to ball bearing production. They do do a significant amount of damage to Schweinfurt and the, and, the, and the three ball bearing factories, but it's not the knockout killer blow as intended before the raid. And back at the airfield, Paul, James Good Brown and everybody else, they're not going to know any of this. Absolutely not. Uh, they're oblivious to what's going on, but obviously it's in their mind throughout the day. So again, James Good Brown's taking himself off to a farm to take his mind off of things. And then he realises there's a point he needs to go back to the airfield, the ETA of the group, they're going to be coming back at a certain time. So he, he starts pedalling his way back to the airfield and then he spots a formation of bombers in the distance. And it's a small formation, so he, he assumes it's the 91st bomb group and they're on their way to, to Bassingbourg. But he's shocked to discover these B-17s have got the triangle L bearing the insignia of the 381st bomb group. So he realises suddenly, hang on, we've sent so many more. Why are there only 15 there? And it's obviously that's when the shock dawns on him when he gets back to the base and he realises the true extent of this disastrous raid that was Schweinfurt. And of the 230 B-17s that were dispatched to Schweinfurt, 36 of them were lost. And 11 of those 36 were from the 381st. And this became the highest loss the 381st suffered during the Second World War. The highest loss of any group on the the Schweinfurt-Regensburg raid. It was a, a real dark moment for the group. So 15 coming back, 11 are lost. What happened to them? So nine were shot down before they even reached Schweinfurt. So I think that gives you some idea of the opposition that they faced, even just getting to the target. Once they were over the target, they were met literally with a black sky. There's a famous picture of the 381st B-17s over Schweinfurt, and it is black. It's black from flak. And, you know, we we look at these images and we see these small puffs of, of smoke, but those small puffs of smoke are 88 millimeter cannon shells exploding into thousands and thousands of boiling pieces of metal so it's um amazing that no 381st b-17s were lost due to flak only due to fighters two other b-17s were lost on the return back to ridgewell one 
he'd been attacked all the way into Schweinfurt. He'd lost two engines and he continued on with just two engines and he straggled back. And um, by the time they reached the continental coastline, the fuel lights had come on on the aircraft and over the North Sea, all engines cut out. A pilot talks about he could holler back and tell everyone where they were in relation to their position. Aircraft ditched in the North Sea, the crew got out, they were promptly rescued by uh, RAF Air Sea Rescue, and they were taken to Manston where they were given RAF clothing to replace the wet clothes that they had on. And the pilot, uh, the following day when they came back to Ridgewell, he was awarded his Distinguished Flying Cross on what was his 22nd birthday. Just 22 years old. Leonard Spivey was also 22. What happened to him? Spivey made it back to Ridgewell. Um, in fact, he talks about not having to navigate his way back. He talks about following the lines of smoke, of columns of smoke from the downed B-17s on the way to Schweinfurt. So he said we literally had to follow that line and that got us back. Spivey did make it back to Ridgewell. And uh, shortly after the Schweinfurt raid, uh, he was shot down on his next mission, the only B-17 to be lost by the group, and he was taken prisoner, bailed out of his aircraft, uh, taken prisoner, and he was in Luft three for the next 17 months. Now, when James Goodbrown saw those 15 B-17s come back, he would have realised that 11 were missing. He wouldn't have known what had happened to the aircrew in those planes what did happen to them believe it or not the majority survived five were actually killed in action out of the the 111 that were missing the vast majority were taken prisoner by the germans but there were a number that were evading capture and that was as i say there were two uh, from king malfunction two the the wingman of, of conway hall they were evading capture it took them two months but they walked all the way to luxembourg and uh, finally got put in touch with the resistance and got back to England, came back to Ridgewell. It was a great occasion because these were the first guys to be shot down over the continent, but actually got back to Ridgewell. So there were, it gave some hope to the crews here at Ridgewell that, you know, if you would get shot down, there was a chance you would make it back. But again, yeah, five, five were killed in action, but really 111 of them have been wiped from the roster. And that's, that's a stark illustration of, of what people like Chaplin Brown had to contend with after this mission. He talks vividly in his diary about the following morning at breakfast where the crews are in the mess halls, but there is a large gap. There's 110 or 111 people missing. And he talks about how no one wanted to speak to, to each other. No one wanted to ask if someone would pass the butter. He said it was like a city morgue. So in the Schweinfurt-Regensburg mission combined, 600 aircrew missing in action. Yeah. And, um, yeah, a, a, a huge loss for, for what is really uh, a young force, a young force of men. But again, you think about the, the ripple effects of those men going missing. The groups are having to, to replenish themselves with men, with replacements. There's, there's a, an account of Joe Nazaro the evening of the Schweinfurt raid, agonising about having to rebuild the group. And it upsets one of the other crew members. He's listening to this thinking, well, Nazaro doesn't care. He doesn't care that we've lost... 111 men all he was worried about is having to rebuild a group but Nazaro had already been told you need to get your group going again because we've got another raid coming up so you need to show that you haven't been that affected by this mission and Mike what were the lessons to be learned from the Schweinfurt Regensburg raid oh there were there were a lot of lessons I mean this was let's not get away from it this was a hugely ambitious mission the planning of this the sequencing of it the staging of it were, were, were all very ambitious uh, and when things started to go wrong, they went wrong quite catastrophically. There are all kinds of planning issues around it, the sequencing and, and the go-no-go and the, and, and the command and control of how you sequence bomb groups together, etc., the selection of targets, uh, the deception, all of that big stuff. But at an operational level, uh, it was about really the biggest lesson of all was we need a fighter escort. Because, you know, when that fighter escort didn't link up with the three first, they were... Not, they're not defenseless by any stretch of the imagination, but it's, it's a long, long haul. And if you are, if you are going to penetrate deep into German airspace 
whichever way you go, whether you go to North Africa or you come back to UK, you need fighter escort. You are going to run the gauntlet otherwise. The flak will always be there around every target. And, and as the war progresses, there'll be more and more flak. And you can mitigate against that with different, in different ways, flying at different heights, all those things. But really, the Fokker Wolf 190 and the Messerschmitt 109 and the 110s and the 210s and the 410s, they're just going to keep coming. And uh, if there's no fighters, then you can bring those big, big, heavy Messerschmitt 110 with their rockets in because there's no escort fighters to shoot them down. They can stand off. And the very thing that you want to do for accuracy and defense, which is a, maintain a very tight combat box defense interlocked with other combat boxes, will work against you because you're a densely packed target against a heavily armed 20 millimeter cannon free flight rockets etc Messerschmitt 110 which is designed just for this before the war as a bomber destroyer so if you are going to do what you say you're going to do and you're going to live or die by your daylight precision bombing doctrine and you are going to go and do a shrine first again or or something similar then you need a fighter escort and and that's by the end of 1943 later in this year it becomes quite obvious that the attrition rate of these raids is simply not sustainable. And we either abandon daylight bombing, switch to night, or we find a fighter escort that will do the job. And we get an escort that takes us all the way there, or at least further in, and we can be protected at least most of the way, if not all of the way. A fighter escort then, all the way there and all the way back. Mike Peters, Paul Bingley, thank you very much. And for any listeners who want to find out what happened to the 381st Bomb Group, you can find out by reading Mike and Paul's book, Bomb Group. And we'll put a link to that book so you can order that book in the show notes page to this episode of the Mighty 8th Podcast. But for now, that's it for this episode of the Mighty 8th Podcast. Do join us again for another episode episode wherever you get your podcasts but for now from me johan tasker military historian mike peters and paul bingley chairman of ridgewell airfield commemorative museum thank you very much Tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and Mop Master dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.